Thank you for tuning in to AWP's podcasts. The following recording you're about to hear is AWP's 2007 conference keynote address hosted by Georgia College and State University in Atlanta, Georgia, Thursday, March 1st, 2007. This event features an address from Lee Smith. Now you will hear Marty Lamon of Georgia College and State University provide an introduction. I first met Lee Smith in August 2001 when I invited her to be Georgia College and State University's fall convocation speaker. A thousand first-year students read her novel, Oral History, over the summer, then met in small groups to discuss her book that August. Lee met and talked to many of those students, then addressed a full assembly, challenging and inspiring them to read, to care about their education, and thus care about their lives and the contributions they might make to the world in which they lived. Six years later, Lee's new novel on Agate Hill has been chosen for Western North Carolina's Together We Read program involving 22 counties. And again, her work is challenging and inspiring communities of readers who, I hope, will pass on that inspiration to their children, or who knows, to their parents. Lee Smith is the author of many novels and short story collections, including Break Mountain Breakdown, Cakewalk, Fair and Tender Ladies, News of the Spirit, Saving Grace, and The Last Girls. She is the recipient of the Robert Penn Warren Prize for Fiction, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Fiction, the John Dos Passos Award, the Southern Book Critics Circle Award for The Last Girls, and many other awards too numerous to name. Growing up in the Appalachian Mountains of southwestern Virginia, nine-year-old Lee Smith was already writing and selling for a nickel apiece. <laughs> Stories about her neighbors in the coal boom town of Grundy and the nearby isolated hollers. But in an interview with Arts and Letters, she told Gordon Johnston, who had noted her interest in music, that, I quote, I would probably rather have been Dolly Parton. <laughs> but instead, I was singing impaired. I was always one of the kids who was told, keep your mouth shut from the second grade on. Consequently, I had to find another way to sing my thoughts. So I suspect Lee may not sing for us tonight. But then again, I know that what she has to say about reading and writing will strike a chord with all of us who care about literature, those books like hers that inspire us all to sing our own tunes, off key, on key, and otherwise. Friends, please welcome our keynote speaker, Lee Smith. Thank you. Um, I am, as you can imagine, incredibly lucky to have um, gone to Hollins College, to have happened upon Richard Dillard as my freshman English teacher, and um, to have benefited from just the wonderful kind of atmosphere that he always created in a classroom where it was okay to have fun it was okay to try things that you couldn't possibly do. And it was just a safe environment, you know, to be writing, to be stretching, to be doing 
all um, all kinds of things. I mean, I, I'm so lucky, I think, to have been there. I remember one thing, you probably won't even remember this, but I had written this um, story that I thought was incredibly intellectual and challenging. And all it was was this one person was sitting in a chair thinking for the whole story. <laughs> And I went in to see what Richard thought of it, which was actually not much. But um, he said, well, Lee, he said, let me leave you with this thought. He said, I think perhaps you should bring on the bear. <laughs> Do you remember that? And I've thought about that ever since. <laughs> Just bring on the bear. Um, and <laughs> one, one other thing that, um, that, I, that I've taken away and cherished from George, from a class that I was in that George Garrett taught. George was always, like Richard, um, unfailingly kind. I mean, he didn't believe that creative writing classes should be a place to really warp people you know? <laughs> and send them to shrinks for their lives. And, you know, so, but I remember um, somebody had turned in a story in George's class that was really one of these very competent stories and it was sort of tending toward becoming it was a thriller kind of story you know and um and it was very slick and it was like the guy was writing it with an idea of you know to sell and george read it we all read it and george um just said you know very kindly he said this is you know this is very good this is very competent and he said but you know i'm not i'm not really seeing I'm not really hearing any news of the spirit here. And I just love that phrase, news of the spirit, because I think that's what, you know, what literature has and what we're all trying to, to bring is, is news of the spirit and what we're trying to, to hear is news of the spirit as we write. And um, I named a book news of the spirit for that because it just, you know, it just speaks to me and, and speaks to me still, I think. Um, tonight, I... I actually, I got so I was so terrified about doing this that I wrote this down. So I have a I have a name for this talk, and the name is "A Life in Books." A friend told me recently that she thinks of her whole life in terms of people, who she was living with in such and such a year, who she knew then, who she loved. Another friend said that she thinks of her life in terms of places. If she can visualize the house or the apartment where she was living or the view from that window, she knows exactly who she was then in that particular time and place. This conversation made me realize that in a certain way, I think of my own life in terms of books. First, as a reader. For I was a reader long before I was a writer. In fact, I started writing in the first place because I couldn't stand, and this is as a child, because I couldn't stand for my favorite books to be over. So I wrote more and more chapters onto the ends of them. <laughs> I wrote many, many chapters onto Heidi, for instance, and The Secret Garden, and Misty of Shinktig. And I'll read you a little passage from a, uh, a fairly autobiographical story I've written since. Now, the name of the story is Tongues of Fire. The most notable thing about me as a child, before I got religious, I mean, 
was my obsessive reading. I had always been an inveterate reader of the sort who hides underneath the covers with a flashlight and reads all night long. But I did not read casually or for mere information. What I wanted was to feel all wild and trembly inside, an effect first produced by The Secret Garden, which I'd read maybe 25 times. Other books which had affected me strongly were Little Women, especially the part where Beth dies, and Gone with the Wind, especially the part where Melanie dies. <laughs> I had long hoped for a wasting disease. <laughs> such as leukemia, to test my mettle. I also loved Marjorie Morningstar, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and books like Dear and Glorious Physician, The Shoes of the Fisherman, Christie, and anything at all about horses or saints. I was a fool for horses and saints. I read all the Black Stallion books, of course, as well as Margaret Henry. But my all-time favorite was a book named God's Girl, especially the frontispiece illustration depicting Joan as she knelt and, quote, prayed without ceasing for guidance from God, whose face was depicted overhead in a thunderstorm. <laughs> Not only did I love Joan of Arc, I wanted to be her. <laughs> the only man I ever loved more than Colin of The Secret Garden was Johnny Tremaine from Esther Forbes' book of that title. I used to wish that it was me, not Johnny Tremaine, who'd had the hot silver spilled on my hand. I would have suffered anything, everything, for Johnny Tremaine. Pretty soon, as Marty said, I started writing little books myself. And then my best friend, Martha Sue Owens, and I began publishing a neighborhood newspaper, which we printed out laboriously every week by hand and peddled door to door for a nickel. Most of the entries went something like this one, which is an actual entry. Lee Smith and Martha Sue Owens were taken by car to Bristol, Virginia <laughs> to shop for school shoes. <laughs> they got to look at their feet in a machine at Buster Brown. And guess what? Their bones are long and green. <laughs> But we got in lots of trouble for some editorials, such as this one about a neighbor entitled, George McGuire is too grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> and another which read, Mrs. Ruth Boyd is a mean music teacher. She hits your fingers with a pencil and her house smells like meatloaf all the time. <laughs> Martha Sue and I both love Nancy Drew books, so we started our own espionage firm, which I would later describe in a short story, and this is from the story. We lived to spy, and this was mainly what we did on our bike trips around town. We'd seen some really neat stuff, too. For instance, we had seen Roger Ainsley, the coolest guy in our school, squeezing pimples in his bathroom mirror. We had seen Mr. Bondurant whip his son Earl with a belt, and later when Earl dropped out of school and enlisted in the Army, we felt we knew why. We had seen our fourth grade teacher, prissy Miss Emily Horn, necking on the couch with her boyfriend and smoking cigarettes. Best of all, 
We had seen Mrs. Cecil Hertz come running past a picture window wearing nothing but an apron, <laughs> followed shortly by Mr. Cecil Hertz himself wearing nothing at all and carrying a spatula. <laughs> It was amazing. It was amazing how careless people are about drawing their drapes <laughs> and pulling their shades down. It was amazing what you could see, especially if you were an athletic and enterprising girl such as myself. I wrote my observations down in a Davy Crockett spiral notebook I'd bought for this purpose. I wrote down everything, date, time, weather, physical descriptions, my reaction, I would use all this stuff later in my novels. <laughs> my first actual novel was published in 1969, and I wrote the first draft of it um, as a senior at Hollins College and got six hours credit for independent study, which was really good because I had been kicked out the year before, <laughs> and I really needed some extra hours, so they were being very kind. Um, but anyway, it was published in 1969, and it concerned a nine-year-old girl, very much like this same nine-year-old girl we have been talking about, whose family in the book is breaking up because the mother has run off with a man. This was an entirely fictional plot, I might add. As soon as the novel was accepted for publication, I was really excited, of course, and I sent a copy immediately to my parents. I waited anxiously for their reply, but I heard nothing, nothing. Finally, I called them up on the long-distance telephone, as we used to say. My mother answered, have you read my book? I asked, yes, I have. <laughs> she said, well, how did you like it? I asked, not much. <laughs> my mother said, in fact, I have thrown it in the river. <laughs> What? I said, what's wrong with it? Everybody in this town is going to think I ran off with a man. My mother said, Mama, that's just crazy. I said, look, you're still there. <laughs> you and Daddy have been married for 30 years. It doesn't matter. My mother said that's what they'll think anyway. So I'm taking steps to make sure they are not going to read it, any of them. Wait a minute, I said, what steps? I have told your father that he cannot order the book. She said, my father's Ben Franklin Dime Store being naturally the only place in town where you could possibly buy a book. And I have told Lillian Elgin that she cannot order the book either. Mama's best friend, Lillian Elgin, was the town librarian. <laughs> so that was it, total censorship. <laughs> total blackout, nobody in town has ever read that book. <laughs> or the next one either. Because my mother also banned it, because it had sex in it. But um, that was just as well, I guess, because it was also just awful um, about an English major who kept having these disastrous romances. And now I was in big trouble as a writer. I had used up my childhood. I had used up my adolescence. <laughs> I had nothing more to say. I had used up my entire life. Um, furthermore, I'd gotten married, and I was happy. So there was no conflict. <laughs> Therefore, there was no story. There was no book. I had used up my whole life. Um, but luckily, by then, I was a reporter working on the Tuscaloosa News in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I have to say, I always thought I was Southern until I went to Alabama. 
that they have got stuff down there you would not believe. So, um, in my first job, my editor assigned me to cover something called the All-South Majorette Contest, which the Susan Arch Finley Memorial Marching Contest, which was taking place um, on the campus of the University of Alabama. This was an enormous contest with categories you might expect, such as fire baton and best personality. But also, a lot, of character, a lot of categories you might not expect, such as, quote, improvisation to a previously unheard tune, <laughs> which I thought was a riot. <laughs> the winner of the whole thing would be crowned Miss Fancy Strut. The girls were really sweet because they were all trying to get Miss Personality, which would give them a lot of extra points but their mothers were just bitches from hell. <laughs> Very competitive. Anyway, it lasted for days. And then finally, all the points from all the categories were tallied up. And the winner turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful blonde girl from OPP, OPP, Alabama, whom I had to interview, of course. So I said, I mean, what do you say? I said, well, how does it feel to be Miss Fancy Strut? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, with tears streaming down her face, she said, this is the happiest moment of my life. And I was just stunned because I could tell this was true. And I was thinking, oh, honey, it's going to be a long downhill slide from here. <laughs> you are so young to peek out like this. <laughs> But you will not be surprised to learn that my next novel was named Fancy Strut, and it was all about majorettes and their mamas, and it was a real breakthrough for me because nobody in it was anything like me at all. Finally, I had made that necessary leap, which is a real necessity since most of us writers just can't be out there living like crazy all the time. Very few these days are the writers whose book jackets list things like bush pilot or big game hunter or exotic dancer. No, more often, as we all know, we are English teachers, frankly. We have children, we have mortgages, we have bills to pay. So we have to stop writing strictly about what we know, which is what they always told us to do in creative writing classes. Instead, we have to write about what we can learn and what we can imagine. And thus, we come to experience that great pleasure Anne Tyler alluded to when somebody asked her why she writes, and she said, I write in order to have more than one life. Let me repeat that. I write in order to have more than one life. And let me tell you, this is the greatest privilege and the greatest pleasure in the world. So I've moved away from autobiography to write about housewives and whores, serpent handlers and morticians, beauticians, country music singers and evangelists, lots of people I will never be. But somewhere along the way, I have also come to realize that the correspondences between real life and fiction are infinitely more complicated than I would ever have guessed as a younger woman. 
Peter Taylor once said, I write in order to find out what I think. This is certainly true for me too. And often I don't even know what I think until I go back and read what I've written. In 1980, for instance, I wrote a novel named Black Mountain Breakdown about a girl named Crystal Spangler who was so busy fitting herself into others' images of her, first fulfilling her mother's beauty queen dreams, then altering her image to suit the various men in her life, that she loses her own true self and finally ends up literally paralyzed. Quote, Crystal just lies up there in that room every day with her bed turned catty corner so she could look out the window and see Lorraine's climbing rambler rose in full bloom on the trellis if she would just turn her head. But she won't. She won't lift a finger. She just lies there. Everybody in town has taken a fancy to it. Um, they take turns feeding her red jello, brushing her hair, reading the Reader's Digest out loud to her. The most terrifying aspect of her condition is that, quote, Crystal is happy as outside her window the seasons come and go and the colors change on the mountain. When I wrote that, I was in a marriage which should have ended years earlier, something I'd been unable to face or even admit later. Reading those words over, I finally understood how I'd felt during the last part of that marriage. I was able then to deal with its inevitable ending. Because no matter what I may think I'm writing about at any given time, even a gruesome long-ago murder or a gay florist or a rockabilly star, I've come to understand that it is all finally about me too often in some complicated way, I won't come to understand until years later. But then, it will be there for me to read, and I will understand it. And even if I don't know who I am now, I will surely have a record of who I was then. At a certain point, I became passionately absorbed in the mountains of southwest Virginia, where I'm from, largely because I realized that things there were changing so rapidly. The fast food restaurants went in around the bend of the Levisa River from my parents' house, for instance, and those big satellite dishes started sprouting like weird mushrooms on every hillside, meaning that the children growing up there don't sound like I do or like their grandmothers did, but like Katie Couric instead. I started collecting the old stories, old songs, and histories with the aim of preserving the type of speech and the way of life of a bygone era. And it's really funny, when I started, my Aunt Kate, who's been my greatest source always, was in her 80s, and I thought, well, I have to hurry. You know, I have to be taping Aunt Kate. And then she lived to be 108. <laughs> so there wasn't that much of a rush. But... <laughs> But I, I was just totally into this. And, and as a result, a funny thing happened to me um, in my novel, Oral History, which was the first novel I wrote using this material exclusively, a voice began speaking who was somehow truly me in a way in which all these other more contemporary more ostensibly like me characters were not. And yet she 
Her name is Granny Younger. She's an old mountain midwife. Was certainly more removed from me in time and place and circumstance than any other character I'd ever come up with. Here's what she says at the beginning of that novel, Oral History. I'll tell it all directly. I'll tell it all. But don't you forget it's Almarine's story. Almarine's and Pricey Jane's and Lord, yes, it's that red-headed Emmy's. If it was my story, I never would tell it at all. There's tales I'll tell and tales I won't. And if it was my story, why, I'd be all hemmed in by the facts of it, like who thou hollers hemmed in by them three mountains. I couldn't move no way but forward. And often, in my traveling over these hills, I have seen that what you want the most, you find off of the beaten path. I never find nothing I need on the trace, for an instance. I never find airy a thing. But I'm an old, old woman, and I have traveled a lot in these parts. I have seen folks come, and I have seen them go. I have caught more babies than I can name you. I've put the burying quilts around many a soul. I said I know more than you know. It might be I'll tell you more than you want to hear. I'll tell you a story that's truer than true, and nothing so true is so pretty. It's blood on the moon, as I said. The way I tell a story is the way I want to, and if and you mislike it, you don't have to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Granny Younger seemed to express that part of me, which is the writer part, which knows things I don't know, which does not find its expression in any other role I ever perform as mother, teacher, wife, whatever. It was after writing this book that I came to realize we sometimes express in our work what is mute or unvoiced in our lives, that part of ourselves which, which doesn't have a voice in our lives. Writing has also become a source of strength for me. I had barely begun a novel named Fair and Tender Ladies, intended as an honest account and a justification, really, of the lives of so many of the resourceful mountain women I'd grown up among, women I'd always considered heroic, but whose plain and home-centered lives are not much valued in the world at large. When our family was struck by two catastrophic illnesses at once, I spent two years sitting by hospital beds. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't been writing that novel. It's heroine, Ivy Rowe, grew stronger and stronger the more I needed her. More recently, I had done a lot of historical research but had barely begun my novel on Agate Hill when my beloved son Josh died in his sleep on October 26, 2003. The cause of death was acute myocardiopathy, the collapse of an enlarged heart, brought about in part, I believe, by all the weight he had gained while taking an antipsychotic drug. He was 33. He'd been sick for half his life, doing daily battle with the brain disorder that first struck when he was a junior. I'm sorry, that first struck when he was at a program for gifted young musicians at the Berkeley College of Music during the summer between his junior and senior years in high school. In many ways, our old Josh died then. That wild, funny boy of 17, many of you knew him, 
that brilliant musician, poet, break dancer, skateboarder, and camper. The hospitalizations began, alternating with intermittent heartbreaking tries at returning to normalcy, then to group homes and day programs. Finally, the new drug, clozapine, was legalized in this country. It gave him back his life, or some of it, in 1992. He moved out of the hospital into a group home, then into an apartment. He completed a vocational rehabilitation program. He got a job. And we got to know Josh all over again. Now a huge, whimsical man of immense kindness, with a special sort of gravity and eccentric insight. In this later stage of schizophrenia, he was like the bodhisattva a person who has achieved the final apotheosis beyond desire and self. It was comforting to be with him. As a friend said, he was a man like a mountain. But then we lost him for good. This time, my grief and rage were indescribable, oceanic, to use a doctor's terminology. He told me that there are basically two physiological reactions to grief. Some people sleep a lot, gain weight, become depressed, and lethargic. I had the other reaction. I felt like I was standing with my finger stuck into an electrical outlet all the time. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't read. I couldn't eat. I couldn't remember anything, anything at all. I forgot how to get to the grocery store. I couldn't find the school where I had taught for 20 years. I left a trail of glasses, jackets, and pocketbooks everywhere I went. In group situations, I was apt to blurt out wildly inappropriate remarks, like a person with social Tourette syndrome. I cried all the time. I lost 30 pounds. Weeks passed, then months. I was wearing out my husband and my friends, but I couldn't calm down. It was almost as if I had become addicted to these days on fire, to this intensity. I felt that if I lost it, I'd lose him even more. Finally, I went to a psychiatrist, a kind, rumpled man who formed his hands into a little tent and listened to me scream and cry and rave for several weeks. Then came the day when he held up his hand and said, enough. What? I stared at him. I'm going to give you a new prescription, my psychiatrist said, taking out his pad and pen. He began to write. Oh, good, I said, wanting more drugs. Anything. He ripped the prescription out and handed it to me. Write fiction every day, <laughs> it said in his crabbed little hand. I just looked at him. I have been listening to you for some time, he said. And it has occurred to me that you're an extremely lucky person since you're a writer. Because it is possible for you to enter into a narrative not your own for extended periods of time. To live in someone else's story, as it were. I want you to do this every day for two hours. I believe that it will be good for you. I can't, I said. I haven't written a word since Josh died. Do it he said. I can't think straight. I can't concentrate, I said. 
than just sit in the chair, he said. Show up for work. Vocational rehabilitation, I thought, like Josh. So I did it. I sat in the chair for three days. The fourth day, I started to write. And my novel, which I'd planned as the diary of a young girl orphaned by the Civil War, just took off and wrote itself. I know I'm a spitfire and a burden. Molly Petrie begins on May 20th, 1874. I do not care. My family's a dead family, and this is not my home, for I'm a refugee girl. But evil or good, I intend to write it all down, every true thing in black and white upon the page. For evil or good, it is my own true life, and I will have it. I will. Molly's spitfire grit strengthened me as she proceeded to give all her heart, no matter what, during a passionate life journey which would include love, betrayal, motherhood, and grief, of course, grief. But by the time we were done with it, Molly and I, two years later, she had finally found a real home. And I could find my way to the grocery store. I could laugh. And yes, through the mysterious alchemy of fiction, my sweet Josh had managed to find his own way into the final pages of the novel after all, as a mystical blues man and healer, living wild and free at last in the deep piney woods he used to play in as a child. When Joan Didion published My Year of Magical Thinking, with its close observation of her life in the painful year immediately following her husband's death, a friend wondered, how can she do that right at such a time? The right question is, how could she not do that? I answered. Writing is what Joan Didion does, what she's always done. It's how she has lived her life. In a different way, I realized, this is how I have lived my life, too. Writing is a source of nourishment and strength. It cannot bring our loved ones back, but it can sometimes fix them in their fleeting memories as they were in life. And it can always help us make it through the night. My psychiatrist's prescription may benefit us all. Whether we are writing fiction or nonfiction, journaling or writing for publication, writing itself is an inherently therapeutic activity. Simply to line up words one after another upon a page is to create some order where it did not exist, to give a recognizable shape to the sadness and chaos of our lives. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to AWP's podcasts. You have reached the end of AWP's 2007 conference keynote address hosted by Georgia College and State University. To hear more podcasts of AWP's selected conference events, please visit our website, www.awpwriter.org.